do want to say thank you for the incredible response. Um, I was there earlier in the week, um, back when only there had only been about 30 people who had gone from our congregation and uh, Miss Wawa and uh, the leaders were saying then they could not have done this without Fellowship Community Church. And uh, we want to get you to know uh, Corinne and Miss Wawa a little bit better. They are courageous people who are wagging their finger in the face of the powers of darkness and saying, my God is bigger. Um, and so grateful for your participation in that. But I want to talk to you this morning about potty training. Um, my name is Ben. I've got three little kids. I'm one of the pastors here. I got some of uh, young families out there, I can tell. And some of you are like, dude, pastors can't talk about potty training. And what I would say is, dude, this is my life. Okay? I've got a two-year-old, and the two-year-old is potty training right now. And I hate it. Okay? What we had an, an accident this week involving potty training and an iPad. No, that's not good, right? But my favorite potty training story was when my oldest, Atticus, was potty training, little Atticus, and he had a little bit of trouble. And so one day, I, pleading with my son, and I'm sure you're not going to find this in any book or manual, do this, I cradled his little face in my hands, and I said to him, Atticus, why do you pee in your pants? Okay, I'm just keeping it 100. And, and I just was at my wit's end. And he looked at me with his big eyes and he says, I just love to. <laughs> at, at that moment, I knew I had lost the battle. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And as I was even getting ready a few minutes ago thinking about this, I don't know any other passage that I just love to talk about more than this passage. Deeply, um, I am thankful and grateful for this season. Pastor Mark introed this time in our body's life where we are entering into the Sermon on the Mount. He en entered this last week called the Sermon, the largest sermon that we have by Christ in the entire scripture, the greatest sermon that we have, the most quoted sermon that we have in bit of scripture in the early church, part of the early didache, the teaching of the early church included this. Even fast forward to our church, this is the foundation for our Celebrate Recovery program, these verses in the beginning of this sermon. This Sermon on the Mount has everything to do with the Christian life, and I am so grateful to march into it with you. And today we're coming to the beginning part of this sermon. Last week, looked, he went on the mountainside, gathered the people, his disciples to him, the people beyond him, and he said these words. And it begins with the Beatitudes, which are eight statements of blessed are the, and he goes through poor in spirit, the mourn, the meek, the peacemakers, and so on. From there, he 
speaks these blessing words, and Pastor Mark mentioned last week that these beatitudes, these eight blessing statements, describe the values of the kingdom of God, and then the sermon will go on and speak about what life is like practically in the kingdom of God. But today we come to this first one where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I just love to pray with you as we enter. Lord, you have said many things in your word. There are so many things you have taught us, so many things that you have given us. Here in this introductory statement to your most dense teaching on what it means to live out your kingdom on earth, we thank you for this radical statement that you give us and pray um, for wisdom and Holy Spirit power as we look into it. In Jesus' name, amen. There's two roots that I want to give us of thinking that, that as we enter into these beatitude statements that I think are going to be really important. The first root is this concept of kingdom of God. In this verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. This concept is decorated all throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, once you start looking for it, you realize, oh my goodness, Jesus is talking about this constantly. There is a future physical kingdom that will come. Revelation 20 speaks of this coming kingdom that will come in the future. But most of the time when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, he's not just referring to a future reality. He's saying the kingdom has come now. Christ is talking about a spiritual kingdom that lives inside of his people, the benevolent rule of Christ that is occurring now, that is happening within his people. A true spiritual kingdom is an inside reality at this moment and the Beatitudes is the most dense teaching of what those values of the kingdom looks like. If you want to know what Jesus values in the spiritual life, how the king has laid out his kingdom, it is on this foundation. The second thing I want to tell and we see this teaching um, that he gives, where it says Jesus went through Galilee. This is Matthew 4, before he gives the sermon. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. We see this after the teaching in Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. The kingdom, the rule of Jesus has now come to his people. Second root, kingdom of God, first root, second root I want to mention is this word makarios. This word makarios they will use is the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Using this word blessed in each of these beatitudes. This word is not a generic word. 
This word is a very specific word. Greek philosophers and authors would use this word meaning happiness or fortune or well-being. But it wasn't just any type of happiness or fortune or well-being. It was a state of happiness that was reserved for the gods. It was what ambrosia, if you're familiar with that term, ambrosia is the food or drink of the gods, makarios is the happiness or satisfaction of the gods. Mark, or Rob Morgan writes this about Greek, Greek authors and poets, Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey and Hesiod. Both Homer and Hesiod spoke of the Greek gods as being happy, makarios, within themselves because they were unaffected by the world of men who were subject to poverty, disease, weakness, misfortune, and death. If you had to read any Homer in high school or you're one of those smart kids and are still reading Homer, if, if you, you realize that Homer used a lot of words, it's estimated that he's only used this word, this specific word, makarios, eight times. This is not just a generic happiness. This is a specific happiness, a supreme state of happiness. Plato Use the word not to just describe the gods, but also use the word to describe someone who was very successful in business. That that happiness usually reserved for the gods could be known on earth if someone was extremely wealthy. Aristotle, and this is my favorite use of the word in Greek literature, Aristotle used this word in juxtaposition to something else. He said this, if Makarios is here, the absolute opposite of Makarios is what he called the needy one. Makarios for those who have all their needs met, and the opposite is being in need. Makarios is a special state of happiness only known to the gods or those who are extremely wealthy. Jesus goes on a mountain gathers people around him, common folk around him, and says, Makarios, for the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We're going to look at three questions. I think you may have gotten the notes on the way in, so no one complain if you haven't received Valentine notes. <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, you got your notes on the way in. Um, you like that, Shannon, didn't you? Yeah, thank you. Um, and there's three questions we're going to be shaping this talk around this. Uh, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? How do we become poor in spirit? And what does the kingdom mean for those who are poor in spirit? So again, you have, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? You have the, this biggest rally, right? You've got Jesus who's healing, doing these diseases, talking about the kingdom, and he comes to this mountainside, and he comes to this mountainside with the people spread out and the acoustics just right, and here's the big rally. Here's the big teaching point. Here's the densest teaching, and here comes Jesus. The band stops. He walks out, and he says, Makarios! to those who are inner poor. And they say, what does that mean? How could a king of spirituality say, blessed are those who are poor in spirituality? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
Well, when we look at poverty, we, we, poverty is a little bit defining something what it isn't, right? We ask, well, what is, what's the definition of darkness? It's what? Absence of light, right? It is and what it isn't. Well, what is poverty? Physical poverty is the absence uh, or the lack of necessary resources or the ability to get them. That's physical poverty. It is found in what it isn't, in what it doesn't have. Spiritual poverty, on the other hand, is the lack of being able to meet our own needs in the false treasures of the heart. It is found in what it isn't. It is the inability to achieve makarios on our own. Scripture, Jesus in particular, teaches a lot about false treasures. He speaks about this in Matthew 6. He speaks about this in the Gospel of John. Talks about the, the temptation of, of being caught up in these false treasures. And, and I want to talk about three false treasures, three things we look for Makarios in, and we actually f- do not find them there, but we find them in the poverty of not getting them. And I want to do that by looking at Matthew 4, if you would. If you're in your Bibles, we're going to go back from Matthew 5 to Matthew 4, because in Matthew 4, We've got a famous passage of Satan coming to Jesus, right? Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, not really a fair time to come to Jesus, hasn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights. This fully man person has not eaten for 40 days. He is, he is on his deathbed, and many he is starving to death at this point. And Satan comes to him to entice him three times. And I believe in each of these enticing, he is, he is going after Idols that are in our hearts are in the hearts of people for all time and culture. This is the passage in Matthew 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's an understatement. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you. They will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil, third time, took him to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Want to look at three treasures of the heart in this passage. The first treasure, false treasure, is self, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is satisfying my own or others' needs as a way of gaining my own sense of happiness. Spiritual poverty is moving away from the temptation to find my worth in what 
I can achieve or I can do. Self-sufficiency is an age-old one. And here you have Satan coming to Jesus and being like, Jesus, wow, king of the universe, this is a little pathetic, right? You came, some angels saw you when you were born, then you come amongst the poor, not that smart, come and, and start doing some miracles and, and, and maybe starting this thing, but now, like, look at you. This is before he had disciples, and he says, look, this is, this is the king of the world dying on this hillside? And he says, Jesus, if you were really something... If you were even a little something, if you had even a little bit of magic powers in those paws, you could make that piece of rock become a pizza. Like, come on, man. This is pathetic. This is all you got. And he's saying to Jesus, who of course could have fed himself anytime, show that you actually can take care of your own needs. You think you're going to change the world? You can't even feed yourself. And he's playing on this temptation that lives, that lives in the heart of every one of us to show who we are by the fact that we can take care of me and mine. The kingdom of man says, I am satisfied because I am successful enough to take care of my own needs it, it, this temptation is to say that I, I, am, I am good or I am at peace uh, if I make enough, if I work hard enough. People who struggle with this false treasure see, see the, uh, find it easy to describe the world in terms of winners and losers and are desperately trying to push themselves in the winner category. They love to be seen for how busy and capable they are. They value external signs of achievement, and they hate being thought of as a needy person. People who live by this kingdom experience pride when they can be self-sufficient, or shame when they feel like they can't. First, false treasure, self-sufficiency. Secondly, the, the approval of others Right? Satan comes to Jesus and he's like, all right, okay, you're not going to do the rocks pizza thing. This is what we're going to do. Jesus, you see Jerusalem here? You see all those important people walking around in the temple courts? Okay, I got the plan. What you're going to do is you're going to jump. And right as you jump, the horns are going to blow, the angels are going to come because you can command them, and they will swift you up, and it's this magical moment. You had one of these when you were born, but you wasted it on the shepherds. Now you can have it again in front of everybody, and you will finally prove who you are to people. If you just bow down to me, I'm just asking for that, but you will then have the approval of all these people. Your family will see what you are, right? Your town will see what you are. News will spread of the God that you are. If you just would jump, you can see this. What a scene it will be. You will come out of this obscurity and finally matter and Satan is playing on this temptation that you are something based upon the admiration that you receive. Spiritual poverty is moving away from the temptation to find our security 
our meaning in our relationships. And that relationships could be the relationship with um, your, your, your work, your, your business, the, the people around you, your family, that the approval of others feels like maybe if I get the approval of others, then I can take a sip at that Makarios. It is a false treasure. As an incredibly intelligent anthropologist, Michael Scott says this of this temptation. He says, would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Right? This is the temptation of the heart of wanting to find ourselves in the approval of others. People who are very susceptible to this false treasure, those of us who are susceptible to that, we work hard to be noticed by our families, our, our friends, our neighborhoods. We can't seem to get funny enough, spiritual enough, beautiful enough, likable enough. And, and people, when we struggle with this, this, this desire, this false treasure to be approved of by others, we find it difficult to work on our inner world. Why? Because no one sees us working on our inner world. It's because we are often so concerned with how we look on the outside. This kingdom, the kingdom of approval, produces jealousy and loneliness. Comparison is the thief of joy. And when we are trying to find our way in the approval of others, we're always trying to claw ahead and are always upset when someone claws ahead of us. Third, false treasure, we see temptation to Jesus that can lead us into this understanding of poverty of spirit, moral authority, Satan says to Jesus, if you only bow to me, I will give you moral power. I'm going to make these places Jesus nations. You can have all these nations and people. You will have the deep satisfaction of ruling these people and being the one who defines what's good and what's bad Jesus speaks to this heart space in the Pharisees all the time. Spiritual poverty is moving away from the temptation to find our identity in being good and right, to find maybe we don't, maybe we haven't achieved, maybe we aren't self-sufficient as much as we want to be, maybe, maybe we don't have the approval of others as much as we want, but at least at the end of the day, I can hang my hat on the fact that I'm a good one, and I can gain my sense of identity in being better than other people. The kingdom of man says, my source of makarios, happiness and satisfaction, is that I am a better person, and that those I disagree with or I'm in conflict with are worse. I am right, and it feels good. It, it is almost happy for those of us who struggle with this false treasure, this false kingdom, to view the world as a dirty place. We want to see it as so dirty and bad because it makes me feel more clean and special. Jesus was very strong against those who worked so hard to do good on their own. 
this type of kingdom, this type of false treasure, so sneaky and insidious, it produces godlessness and it is poison to the gospel. Godlessness, because it is choosing to try to do good without God, trying to be good without God is a slap in God's face. This is how he spoke to the Pharisees. No matter how many Christian tattoos they tried to put on, it was about themselves and poisonous because we know of nothing more discouraging to sinners than those who try to use their morality as a club. It teaches that Christ is not for everyone. It is only for the good ones. And I I belabor that point of the false treasures because I think they are identifying and understanding them is the means to which we can understand this next question. These last two will be shorter. How do we become poor in spirit? I don't think there's anyone in here that's like, man, I love being a proud person. I love finding my identity in me. No, we, we've tasted enough of that world, enough of that kind of thinking that we know the sour aftertaste of it. We know the competitive and fearful world that it means when we try after these false treasures. We're here, right? And we're gathering here and online because we want to understand what is real makarios, what is real treasure. So how do we, how do we get more poor in always going after, get more, uh, do less to go after these false treasures. And, and I feel very, or go after these things that Chris Webb calls cancers to our soul. He, here's what I say. I don't think this is a willpower thing. I don't think we become poor in spirit by just shoveling out the false treasures and then finally attaining it. We become poor in spirit when we are truly shown the emptiness of the false treasures. We become poor when we realize that is not the way to get rich. When we come to the place in our life and say, that is not makarios, that makarios is not just for those who can be self-sufficient, approved by others, and have some sense of moral authority. Ruth Reamer, wife of Ralph Reamer, who's retired um, uh, from here, dear person to many of us, we were singing a song in Collingswood. They attend Collingswood, and, and Ruth was doing the worship song, and, and the song was Christ is Enough. And, and I just turned to Ruth, and I said, Ruth, I know you believe that. And actually, people of your generation like that I've seen follow Jesus for a long time, they believe that, that Christ is enough. But I said, honestly, a lot of us who who aren't quite in that generation yet, we we feel like Christ probably is enough, but what we want is Christ and. We want Christ and a good marriage. Christ and a a, a, a satisfying reputation. Christ and some sense of moral authority. Christ and. We don't just want Christ. How did you find out Christ was enough? She kind of blew me off. Ruth Reamer, believe it or not. She said this. She said, oh, Ben. That wasn't smacking me, by the way. I don't know, I don't know what that was. But she said, 
Then, just what she said, words right around these, we have tried all of those things too. We have played those games. We have just done it longer. We have seen how empty those false treasures are. And in truly seeing it, in truly living our lives in pursuit of it, we finally come to more believe this is not Makarios. That is poverty of spirit, saying this does not hold my real treasure. The kingdom of God is, comes often through suffering through seeing the emptiness of treasures. It also comes through success, through getting some false treasures and being like, this is not what it's cracked up to be. But the kingdom of God is not for those who muscle their way to spiritual poverty. It's not for those who will their way to poverty and spirit. The kingdom of God is for those who can't get it straight, don't know why you're here this morning, didn't read your Bible this week, didn't fight off temptation like Jesus did in Matthew 4. The kingdom of God is made for those who have tried and sought after false treasures and probably still would if they were any good at it. The kingdom of God, and you can imagine as He's teaching these people who probably don't know much wealth, who have not achieved power, and who, who have a sense of, we just can't get Macarius. And he said, guess what? The kingdom is for you. There is a better land. And it's a land where the king is king. Question three, what does the kingdom of God for the, mean for those who feel, who are spiritually poor? First off, it means wealth. Future images of the kingdom of God in the future includes feasts. There's enough to go around. There's unhindered joy. There's no risk of loss or death. There's no need to fear. There's opulence. There's, there's beauty. There's overwhelming sense of fortune and wealth. That physical reality is a spiritual reality now. But here's the beauty, the kingdom, the beauty, the spiritual riches. Come from the pain of being poor. Henry Nouwen says this, how can we embrace poverty as a way to God when everyone around us just wants to become rich? Poverty has many forms. We have to ask ourselves, what is my poverty? Is it lack of money? Lack of emotional stability? Lack of a loving partner? Lack of security? Lack of safety? Lack of self-confidence? Each human being has a place of poverty. That's the place God wants to dwell. How blessed are the poor, Jesus says in Matthew 5.3. This means that our blessing is hidden in our poverty. We are so inclined to cover up our poverty and ignore it that we often miss the opportunity to discover God who dwells in it. Let's dare to see the poverty 
as the land where our treasure is hidden. It means wealth. The kingdom of God for the spiritually poor means rest. This is the message of Jesus. It's not that we attain or achieve the kingdom. It is that the king brings his kingdom to us. Nothing to prove here, nothing to achieve here. Don't have to fight for territory or your corner of real estate here. You don't have to be more beautiful, more likable. You don't have to mask your dysfunctions, your disorders, your mental health, your struggles, your temptations, just as I am, just as you are. Because the kingdom is ultimately not mine or yours. It's his and the risen king's reign of Makarios joy has enough room for each of us. There's a message paraphrase of Matthew 11 that I just love, 28 to through 30, where Jesus says, are you tired, worn out, burned out in religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. It means rest and lastly, it means love. It means love because love is the very fabric of every place where Jesus is. It is the thread that ties all of history together under this king. It is the very DNA of God. It is a, and I've mentioned this to you before, it is one thing to say God can love. It is a deeper thing to say that God loves me. It is an even deeper and truer thing to say that God is love. And we say, that type of land is so far from the world we live in. That type of thinking is so far. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. He says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Jesus said this, my kingdom is not of this world, to which we say this upside-down life, this different way of being with Jesus, so, uh, Pastor Mark said last week, shockingly different than the principles of the world. I would just simply say we are not made for this world but there is a world, a kingdom made for you. In conclusion, this is all written in the plural, which is interesting. It's not blessed is the man who is poor in spirit, blessed is the woman who is poor in spirit, not blessed is the one who is poor in spirit. How much Old Testament blesseds are written? It's they, it's plural. Blessed is the community that operates not as this world. Blessed is the community that doesn't play popularity games. Blessed is the community that does not hoard power but submits to one another. Blessed are the ones in the kingdom who listen to each other's story and pain and don't take advantage of each other because of it. 
Blessed is this village that does not operate in self-sufficiency, approval of others, and moral authority, but one that operates in spiritual wealth where there's always enough to go around and an unprotected rest that includes all and love that binds them all together with their king whose very name is love, love, Makarios, love. And would you stand as we conclude? I'm going to do a prayer over you, over me, from A.W. Tozer, who, who loves and speaks often of this, these Beatitudes, and then we will go. This is from A.W. Tozer, who will conclude our time. Pray with me. Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I can't part with them without inward bleeding. I don't know how to try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that thou may enter and dwell there without rival. Then Shall thou make a place of your feet glorious? Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for thyself will be the light of it. And there shall be no night there. In Jesus the King's name, amen. We are dismissed.